Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we discussed Illinois' revolutionary legalization of cannabis, learned about Appalachian folktales, and heard brand new music. All this plus Size Matters, The Trump Diaries, and Are We Cool Yet? only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for July 5th, 2019. John Daly spoke with the head of the state's Ag Council about the new cannabis laws in our state. Sonia Harper, who represents the 6th District, spoke about the laws funding for minority and craft growers, how urban agriculture can make a dent in Englewood's terrible life expectancies, and why she's visiting farms in every county in Illinois. Radio Free airs every Tuesday, drive time, at 4. We are looked at and we are hailed as the the first state to have the most equity-centric legislation, legalization legislation um, that we've seen thus far. As we know, there are 10 other states, and the biggest complaint among those legal states is that they did little to nothing um, to ensure social equity. And what do we mean by social equity is ensuring that there was a diverse marketplace, ensuring that there was a diverse marketplace in the face of the fact that so many people have records or are in prison um, for marijuana and that now this new industry and this new business is now here and booming, and we currently have zero, you know, minority operators. And so it was very important to the governor and to the bill sponsors, um, most important, and, and to the Black Caucus in Springfield, that we approach the bill from an equity standpoint. And so I'm, I'm very happy that I was involved in that as a, as the, I wasn't even the chair of the AG, as the vice chair of the AG in the beginning. Um, because it was basically the recommendations that the Black Caucus came up with that helped to be the guidebook to write this bill. And what we did was we looked at what all the other states had done and, and, and where maybe their equity programs had went wrong or where maybe they didn't provide enough funding or where maybe they didn't um, um, outline their revenue allocation properly. And so when you get to you know the revenue part of it, again, our governor wanted to legalize marijuana because we need, we direly need this revenue in the state. Um, and I think that another one of the bargaining chips was the split of that revenue. And I think that we also got to a good place when we, as far as social equity, as far as revenue, when we made sure that a, a certain percentage of that revenue, I believe it is 25%, um, gets transferred back into those communities in meaningful ways, meaning that uh, folks and organizations and, and businesses in those communities can apply for grants um, for those programs and for those businesses, as well as the Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity also has a fund whereby folks can apply for grants who may want to start a cannabis business. Uh, the biggest part of that was making sure um, that we got records relief for people, right, who have been previously convicted um, for possession of cannabis. And, and when um, you mean records relief, just just for listeners, you mean having those records? To expunge their records. Okay, yeah. To expunge their records, to clear their records, right? Um, and so we, we also got that into the bill as well. This is not only uh, a good bill because we legalize cannabis in its most equitable way, but it's the single most, it's the single biggest criminal justice reform legislation that we've ever done too because of the amount of people um, that will get relief, the amount of people whose records will be expunged, about 800,000 people. We have never done that before ever in life. And so that alone um, is a very newsworthy point and, and really speaks um, to the focus and the work um, when, when we went into 
crafting the bill to legalize marijuana. And these are 800,000 people with nonviolent uh, offenses. They, the only thing that they had done wrong was they either was caught with possession of or, or the sale of marijuana. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And that was one of the things that, you know, uh, JB sat in, in our studio during the election and he mentioned almost uh, at the onset of the interview yeah. that he wanted to legalize marijuana. And the first thing that he said was he wanted to do it for its social justice reasons, not for the revenue that it could potentially uh, beget. And that was pretty, it was surprising pretty surprising to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and obviously now we're sitting here and, and they've made good on that. Yes, I can when you said that, it takes me back to one of the very first conversations. Um, JB um, um, invited us to a breakfast, the Black Caucus. And he really said some things during that breakfast that really made me think, oh my gosh, I, I really love our governor. I can't wait to, to work with him. And, and, and what that was, was he said, I really believe that your community have been wronged. I really believe um, that you have been treated unfair and I'm gonna do whatever I can to make that right. And I believe that he has tried his best to do that within this legislation. But again, this is just legislation. And so um, I am willing and I am I'm optimistic to see what implementation will look like, to, to see if implementation will give, give us the desired results that we need, right? Because what we really want, when we, when we know that this bill is successful, we will see successful um, social equity applicants in the marketplace thriving. Um, yeah, that's what I wanted to yeah. ask you. What, what is what is a successful thing look to you as somebody that represents you know our community and and Englewood? Are you talking about businesses? Are you talking about storefronts? Are you talking about people having their record expunged? They're, I'm they're talking about back. everyday people like you and me. If we wanted to, being able to participate in this market and having a clear path to and the barriers being lowered to right. And so what that means is that in the current medical program, there's only two ways to enter business along with the $250,000 non-refundable application fee. Right. Stuff like that doesn't exist anymore. Now we have way more licenses than just those two, and where you had to come in to, and have a big plan and big capital plans to, to have a big cultivation or a big distribution. And so now we've lowered the barrier and come up with different licenses, such as the transporter license, the processing license, and one that I'm most excited about, the craft grow license, which means that you don't have to grow a gigantic uh, cultivation facility that costs two, three million dollars to build. You can start a much smaller one um, and grow up. And so what success looks like to me is making sure, again, the everyday person is able to access these opportunities and not just the people who have been uh, running the market already. Can you take us through what that craft, talk a little bit about this, because John and I have talked about this off the air. Um, there still is a, a significant amount of money that you do have to input into this marketplace, like any business. I think that the license is 50K, is that correct? I think you need to put down, but um, what what is this, this craft growing license? Because we talk about craft beer, for example, on this station quite a bit. Is that kind of what you're looking toward, or is it a more community-focused thing, such as the urban farms we see and we've also discussed in the show? What craft grow means is simply growing in smaller batches. Yeah. And it, it, is, it is denoted by the square footage that you use. So forgive me, I don't know the exact square mm -hmm. footage. Um, but as we know, cultivation centers are large, and they grow in, in many different rooms. And they're, right. you know, they're in big warehouse centers. And um, again, when I'm when I'm thinking about my urban farmers in the city, be they north side, north side, east side, south side, west side, whatever, 
is that really likely that they can come in at that level? Or can we come in kind of at the level that we've already been working on uh, in the community as it relates to urban agriculture? A couple of lots at a time, uh, a small a building over here at a time. And I, that is what I envision um, a craft grow operator coming in at that at a smaller, a much smaller level, uh-huh. but but still a grower. Do you, do you not to cut you off, John, no. but just, do you really think that um, – People are going to take a couple urban lots and and grow cannabis on them. I mean, I think there's just to play devil's advocate here. I think there's some um, security issues, obviously, that come up. I mean, I I know growers in other states that I'm not going to discuss, but you know, when you have a grow operation, obviously there are there are things going on. Uh, is that something actually realistic? Do you think people do? Do you think in ten years, for example, we're going to see the Bridgeport Victory Gardens with six stalks down there? I'm going to tell you no. Now you might see some hemp growing, but you're not going to see any marijuana growing because um, the Illinois Department of Agriculture regulation states that all marijuana must be grown indoors. So you can't even grow outdoor, period. So when you talk about being able to take some urban lots to do that, no. Now, if you were to build um, a, a facility which met all the requirements of uh, the Illinois Department of Professional and Financial Regulations as well, of the, as well as the Illinois Department of Agriculture, well, then, yeah, you could take a couple of city blocks and grow in your indoor facility, but definitely no outdoor. And then I'm, I made the, the statement about hemp when I am really more so excited about the potential for hemp than I am for, for marijuana. You know, it's such a sexy subject and everybody wants to attach themselves to that. But we legalized industrial hemp last year. Right. And, um, and, and CBD production from hemp is huge. It is huge. And you get a lot more products, a lot more um, markets with hemp, right, than you do with marijuana. You, from, from hemp, we get food, um, you get fiber, uh, you get, you get, you get um, um, fuel. Right, as well as CBD and many and many many other things. So, the market potential, the revenue potential from hemp, I see is much much larger. And uh, marijuana, million dollar industry, hemp, a billion dollar industry. And so, again, always trying to see in what ways, what can we do in an urban setting? What can we do in a rural setting? How can we continue, maybe even to work together to increase opportunities for both communities? Because there are areas, rural areas, that are struggling and that are food deserts and that are education deserts, just like they are in the city of Chicago. And I believe that this is an issue or a subject area um, that we could definitely work together and improve both communities on. Right, right at the beginning of the hour, you know, you mentioned in, in your career you've worked on education, you've worked on violence prevention. Um, and, and you've worked on uh, equity and economics. How does agriculture, which we've talked about a lot, you've talked about your involvement in urban agriculture, you've talked about your uh, involvement in the agriculture committee, how does that connect? Um, you talked about a very big idea of connecting the state, which is, you know, that's governors talk about that. So that's very interesting to hear our representative talking about that. But, but how do those things connect? Wow. So how do those things connect? I, I worked all in that right before I came to the legislature, and, and it was just fun just experiencing that. First of all, what brought me to this is the issue of food, right, and the issue of food security. And the way that agriculture touches food security is that I live in a food desert in my community. We can't walk to a grocery store. At the age of 32 years old, I became the oldest person in my family. I buried my dad, my grandma, my auntie, my uncle in the span of five years, and they all died from preventable diet-related diseases. 
and we've been living in a food desert for 40 years. Clearly, they one had something to do with the other. We don't have access, and um, and and I noticed that it was, you know, on their on their deathbeds or or, or when we they were going through their their last treatments in life that they were being prescribed herbs, um, and 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 natural remedies, and they were even being just prescribed marijuana, but more so they were just being prescribed nutritional like health food store items, and I'm like, well, if we were eating this way our whole lives, will we even be this way? And so. And I look around in the community. Well, what is stopping that? Oh, we don't have grocery stores. Oh, we only have corner stores and they only sell overprocessed food and, and foods uh, high in sugar, salt and fat. And so, again, the way that ag relates to this is our is number one, our public health. And again, I told you I was 32 years old and I lost everyone in my family older than me. Well, think about if I still need them around to teach me how to raise my kid or to teach me how to, to do things in life. So we're losing generations of people too early because life expectancy in one part of my district is 30 years shorter than it is in another part of my district simply because we don't have a grocery store. We can't walk to them. My seniors are not going to walk outside to get that healthy food that they need. But there's no other way that they get it. And so that's kind of what connected me to agriculture. When I started working for an urban farm in my community called Growing Home, we used the farm. First of all, let me brag a bit. It's Chicago's first and only USDA certified organic farm located in the city of Chicago. And it's not only a farm, but it also serves as a job to give job skills to people with multiple barriers to employment, right? So we also see ag as a way to give jobs and job skills to people who may have never had a job, who may be returning home from prison and it's hard to find work for, who may have tr problems um, with childcare. I have, with my own eyes, seen this be the single most successful transitional jobs training program I have ever seen in my own community. When we when we take on 14 production assistants a year and they divide their day halfway between working in the farm in the day and, and doing their, their, their interviewing prep and job search in, in the evening, what we teach them and the relationships that we make with employers work so well that we find ourselves having no help halfway through the growing season because they've all been hired out to their permanent long-term jobs. And from there, hopefully, you know, their lives get better and better. And so that's another way I see ag connecting, um, giving people a sense of hope, bringing in ag those job opportunities that we just do, don't have in our community, especially when you couple them with some other type of um, life, you know, life-saving services and referrals. Um, one of the other ways that I see in the most heartwarming ways that I see ag um, related to the other issues, especially when you're talking about um, preventing gun violence. I believe that the farms and gardens create safe spaces for our children to gather, for intergenerational dialogue to happen, for just those conversations that would never ever take place because we're so busy in our houses thinking bad about the neighbors or believing the negative perceptions that we hear about each other every day on the news, these farms and gardens bring people out, brings more of a neighbor. In fact, I, I use my community garden on my block more as my block club and we use it to organize for the things that we need, have parties for the kids. And, and I don't believe that my relationship with my neighbors would be as strong as it is without it or without that farm down the street from there that I used um, to kind of help to bring the community together. And so that's kind of how I see ag being able to just touch, you know, those different areas, especially the different facets of issues that we have in the community. No, it is not one end-all, be-all solution to food deserts or anything. It's just one of the many solutions I think that we can apply.
The Boys from High 94 spoke with Allison Heiji, author of the dystopian novel Scribe. Heiji discussed the folk traditions of Appalachia, why apocalyptic novels are having their moment, and how the jacktails retain their power. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in this as something to talk about and write about? Yes, yes, I can. So I grew up in southwest Virginia uh, on a farm in Franklin County. But my dad's family has been in deep southwest Virginia uh, for more than 200 years, um, just sort of uh, living on tiny, hard-scramble farms. My mom's family is from western Maryland. So I grew up, uh, my dad was a country doctor, and I grew up with people coming to our house and asking for to see my dad, and while they waited to see him, they would spin yarns. And when I went with my mom to the grocery store or to church or to school, everybody just established their social relationships with stories. They would be funny stories. They would be tragic stories, true or not true. Um, They would be exaggerations, embellishments. Um, And a lot of them had their roots in stories that folks had heard for a long time. So I, I just grew up where people would fill the space, either with music or with stories, and that has just, I think it's probably at the root of why I'm a writer coming from an oral story telling culture, uh, black and white, that just begged, barred, and stole from lots of different sources. That brings me uh, to our next question. So, these were, uh, Scribe was influenced by the, the Jack Tales, for our listeners that aren't familiar, Jack and the Beanstalk is one of the most commonly known, and which I believe the origin of the Jack Tales was in England, but then they came over and were uh, uh, passed along in the South. Can can you tell us a little bit about the influence of the Jack Tales on, on Scribe? Yes. So my dad is old enough to have remembered having heard fragments of these stories from sources when he was uh, way down in Tassel County as the boy. I think the, the first sort of oral recordings were made mostly in western North Carolina in the 20s and 30s. Um, so there were a little bit of that that comes directly. From me, more directly, uh, the Jack Tales and a lot of uh, Appalachian folk tales were being revived in the 60s and 70s when I was in school. And the Blue Ridge Institute at Ferrum College was founded in the 70s, um, and they started really collecting this culture. And one of the ways they started spreading it around was taking it to the schools, having us read it, learn it, and be in sort of plays about it. And um, so, again, this was something that was sort of handed to us, like, hey, this is your old culture, and it was astonishing to me that it could be traced back to England. But also what was interesting to me was how it had been distorted and repurposed and changed in little local ways that, that I could then sort of hear coming back into the loop, if that makes sense. In Scribe, Billy Kingery is, is a devil character taken directly from um, Jack Tales influence. Yeah, he's a bad um, dude. Yes, he is. Yeah, he is a bad dude. 
And again, you know, it's funny to say this now, although at the time when I was growing up, I loved every second of it. Um, My dad would just come back and tell stories, and he he wanted them to be safe stories for us. But he would say, oh, I'd just been down to so-and-so's farm, and I had to cross so-and-so's crossroads. And, you know, that's the place where... Mr. So-and-so or Ms. So-and-so says the devil always comes out on a Saturday night. You better be careful at the crossroads. So that kind of thing goes way back in not just English culture, but in a lot of different cultures. But, yeah, that was the kind of thing that I just would sort of hold in my head. So when I needed a bad dude um, <laughs> in my book, I just started thinking of those devil stories and also of the kind of social power that, that people who ran uh, country stores would have even when I was a kid because there was one about every I don't know six or seven miles you could you could walk to and those folks handled the mail they handled money um, they handled legal documents they had a lot of influence in their community yeah and they still do I mean I, I think people maybe listening in the city of Chicago don't realize that my, my parents happen to live in a very rural area of Connecticut and the general store still is the uh, post office it is still the place where uh, you can change checks uh, get postage stamps, all, all kinds of business actually is centered around that. So uh, when I was reading the character of Billy Kingery, that uh, really flashed in my mind as well. Um, and, they, and they are good. They can do uh, legal business and illegal business probably too. Well, they know. do a lot of illegal business here in Chicago, but we won't go into our bodega culture uh, too, too deeply. Uh, you know, not mentioning the one that's been shut down down the block from us. Um, I don't want to get too far away from Scribe, but I do want to mention just one thing before we, we go into your book directly. You've also done a number of books uh, about horse racing, uh, Keeneland and, and Boletto come to mind. And of course, I had read Boletto and not realized that you uh, had written that as well as Scribe because I'm stupid. Um, <laughs> but I, I wanted to ask you about that specifically because your books, I read them at the same time I was reading the book, The Lord of Misrule, which I'm sure you've, you've read oh, as well. Yes, yes uh, I have. And I wanted to talk to you briefly about that because The Lord of Misrule made a, a very big impact on me. It's a classic uh, tale of sharpsters and horses and the horse racing culture. And I just kind of wanted to understand how you got interested in that. I know you live in Wyoming, but you, you've had kind of a, um, you, you've been all over the place. You know, you grew up in Virginia, went to the University of Michigan. How did you get involved in that culture, which is a very, very American subculture? Uh, as oh, a, it's, a, it's, yeah. a great, it's a great story. So I've been attracted to horses for a long time, and so I rode as a kid. Um, when I was in college, you know, I sort of first got my first taste of being around people who were training what I'd call, you know, uh, off-track thoroughbreds, usually for hunting and jumping. But it really wasn't until the early 90s, and I'd been to racetracks before, but I went to Keeneland in the early 90s, and I went to a morning workout, and I just had this weird doppelganger moment that there were women exercising these incredibly beautiful and well-known thoroughbreds who were exactly my age, exactly my size, and had very similar kinds of backgrounds. And it it was just a kind of whoosh inside me. because there's something really attractive about the animals. The part that, once you start digging into that subculture, you're right, and the Lord of Misrule is a wonderful uh, novel. But the layers of um, chicanery, uh, deep love and respect for animals, the cultural crossings. I set Keeneland before, really, before most of the grooms and people on the backside were Spanish speakers. Now it's, it's very intensely Spanish-speaking, but it's transient, um, and it's, it's also rooted in people who are impulsive and tend to like to take risks. So when they're not working with horses, they're gambling on almost everything else they can think of, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, I, I found that 
horrifying and fascinating and, and riveting. And I just did as much research as I could, talked to as many jockeys and trainers as I could find, and let my imagination just roll. I don't know about the, the Lord of Misrule. Can you give a quick background for people? It Jamie. won a bunch of awards. It, it won a bunch of awards. Yeah, the Lord. When was well, it? It came out. Uh, Alice, am I correct? It came out about eight years ago. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, because Boletto is twenty twelve, and so that sounds about right. And it, it's by a uh, fiction writer. And okay, her name's flown out of my head, but she'd been pretty solidly established. But she just really hit the sweet spot with this. You know, I, I hadn't uh, thought about Jamie Gordon. Jamie Gordon. Yeah, I think that's, that's it. right. Yeah, okay. yeah. Right. That sounds familiar. I hadn't I hadn't thought about uh, horses in literature until you guys were just talking about it, and it made me think of McCarthy's "All the Pretty Horses." Uh, and and uh, yeah. your your writing reminds me a lot of Cormac McCarthy's writing. Um, this one, "Scribe," kind of reminded me of uh, "Child of God." If you've read oh that my. one, and, wow! And I'll say thank you. Not necessarily <laughs> in the in the, in the the extreme violence. But uh, in the tone and the 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 blend of hearsay and 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 folktale, and I I just wondered if you were a fan of McCarthy and I very much am, okay. and I started reading him uh, before he started doing Western work. People said, you know, you need to read Suchery. I guess when those reissues started uh, coming out, and and at the time I I thought of him as someone who was deeply steeped in Faulkner, but mm. as he um, became older and moved west that 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 work has been boiled down but it still has that that biblical latinate sort of foundation to it that i think is just the foundation of the way people talk in certain parts of the south Jessica. Oh, hey, dude. What's happening across the street? A parking lot party? That doesn't look like a bank function. No, it's not the bank. It's Kyle. Kyle is throwing a parking lot party? Where is he? Oh, he's right over there. I can't believe this. He knows I'm trying to establish a legitimate Hey, goofballs. Do you want to experience technologically advanced sweetness? Excuse me? By using quantum optics, I have created a new strain of sugar called the Pearl. Here, try a free sample. Uh, thanks. No, this is delicious. Hold on, why don't you go back inside? What the heck are you doing here, Kyle? I'm so glad you asked because you know what? You've had your parties. You've had your lumpin' nose beef thingy. You've had your Labor Day party, and and you've had that weird space buster thing down the block. But guess what? Now I got my party, and it's called Bridgeport Nose Candy. And we got China and her pushcart full of artisanal candies sitting right there selling candy. And all the funds are that we raise are going to go to. Uh, yeah, here's, here's a flyer Bridgeport Nose Candy. Interest fees you knew about this? Oh, of course. Why didn't you tell me? Because you would have said no. What? Observe, this is what loyalty and friendships looks like. Hold on a second, Ed. Kyle, how did you pull in all these people at 20 bucks a pop? Yeah, I don't get it. It's just homemade chocolate. There's there's like 100 people here. Why don't you try this? Uh, No, no, no. no. Your friend, though, if he wants to join the party, he will have to purchase something. Show me your permit, dude. Ed, pay the lady. You gotta try this. Nah, one. forget him. I only serve customers who can hang. That's These are seriously right. the best. What do you, what do you call them? These Step are cocoa in. coconut bumps. Outstanding. Best thing I've ever eaten. Jamie, are you all right? He's mm. fine. Can you feel your soul? Yeah, Jamie. I'm getting taller. Breathing in. 
These are like eating what? little pieces yeah, of heaven. Never yes, even just thought like about how cool my perception of the world has been enhanced by these little candies. What is wrong with these people? They're enjoying handmade artisanal candy. I'm actually feeling a little... Wait. Bridgeport knows candy. Yes. Bridgeport knows candy. Candy. That's right. Those candy. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so. What'd you put in these cookies, China? What are you talking about? What was that? Hey, hey, China, what are you doing? hey get your hand get off my cart. A police scanner. Ah, time to blow. What? Let's roll out. Wow. Jessica, call me. Hey, no, no, China, don't leave. Don't trust me. Jenny, come back. Ed, you ruined it. Oh, Ed, you stupid. Thanks a lot, Ed. She had all your money. Yeah. We were raising money for Lumpin' Radio, Ed. Lumpin' WTF Radio. Oh, I feel real weird. Is the Copro melting? Hey, that's only chocolate inside that candy, right? Oh, mostly. Say what? Whoa, the air is viscous. Go sleep it off, Ed. Guys? Whoa, the air is viscous. These are like eating little pieces of heaven. These are like eating little pieces. These are like eating little pieces of heaven. 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 I need your candy. 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 This week on The Trump Diaries, Robert Mueller agrees to testify in public. The court slaps down a census question. Trump smirks with Vladimir Putin while Jimmy Carter calls him illegitimate. Trump feuds with an American soccer star, and Border Patrol agents are running a racist secret Facebook group, all while overseeing inhumane detention centers. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 889, June 27th. The Supreme Court made two consequential decisions affecting American elections. First, the court barred the Trump administration from adding a question on citizenship to the census, with the Chief Justice saying the explanation offered by Trump, quote, appears to have been contrived. That verdict sent the case down to a lower court, which started reviewing evidence that points to perjury on the part of the administration. The court also ruled against challenges to partisan gerrymandering, appearing to close the door on such claims. The 5-4 majority split along familiar lines held that the drafters of the Constitution understood that politics would play a role in drawing election districts when they gave that task to state legislators, and federal judges are not entitled to second-guess them. The decision will allow legislators to gerrymand opponents out. Robert Mueller agreed to testify in public before Congress next month about his investigation into Russia's election interference and possible obstruction of justice by Trump. In response, Trump attacked Mueller and without evidence accused him of committing a crime. Trump claimed that Mueller terminated FBI communications by deleting text messages exchanged by two former FBI officials, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, quote, and that's illegal, that's a crime. 
In fact, Mueller had requested the text messages be preserved, but the devices had already been reset by the FBI for other agents to use. Two women came forward to corroborate E. Jean Carroll's allegation that Trump sexually assaulted her in the 1990s. Carroll had privately confided in Carol Martin and Lisa Burnback after the alleged attack. Trump has denied Carroll's allegation, claiming she is totally lying and they wouldn't have assaulted her because she's, quote, not my type. In a bizarre case, Trump's diplomatic protocol chief was suspended ahead of the G20 summit in Japan. Sean Lawler is being investigated by the State Department over accusations he verbally abused his staff and carried a whip in the office. The EPA air chief resigned suddenly over possible violations of federal ethics rules. Bill Wareham had helped reverse Obama-era rules aimed at cutting pollutants before joining the Trump administration. He apparently continued working for his former client's interests while holding the office. And Democrats continued to debate as Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden went head-to-head. But both men were eclipsed by Kamala Harris, who dominated the occasion and dented Biden's status as the presumptive front-runner. Pete Buttigieg also had an excellent showing. Trump, after claiming he would not be watching because he would be, quote, busy in Japan, tweeted, boring. Date 190, June 28th. Trump claimed the Supreme Court's refusal to let him add a citizenship question to the census was, quote, totally ridiculous and said he's asked the lawyers if they can delay the sentence until the question can be added no matter how long. The census is actually scheduled to be printed now. In a startling display, smirking Trump jokingly told Vladimir Putin, quote, don't meddle in the election. The meeting between the two was their first since last year's summit in Helsinki. Then Trump took Putin's side over his own intelligence agencies on the question of Russian interference in the election. Trump also told Putin they should, quote, get rid of journalists. Fake news is a great term, isn't it? You don't have this problem in Russia, but we do. Putin responded in English, we also have. It's the same. The House reluctantly passed a $4.6 billion emergency spending bill for the humanitarian crisis on the U.S.-Mexico border. Speaker Nancy Pelosi tried and failed to add additional protections for unaccompanied minors, but the restrictions on the administration's use of funds was shot down by the Senate after a revolt in her own caucus. The Supreme Court said it will hear arguments over whether the Trump administration illegally tried to end DACA. Trump tried to end the program in 2017, claiming it was an unconstitutional use of executive power by Barack Obama. Lower courts have rejected that reasoning. 700,000 Americans' fates hang in the balance. The court is likely to make its verdict known in the thick of the 2020 election race. And breaking with protocol, former President Jimmy Carter said that Trump is an illegitimate president who only won in 2016 because Russians interfered on his behalf. Quote, I think a full investigation would show that Trump didn't actually win the election in 2016. He lost the election and he was put in office because the Russians interfered. Date 191, June 29th. A federal judge blocked Trump from using $2.5 billion in military funding to build a wall at the southern border. It is a permanent injunction halting border wall construction in New Mexico, California, Arizona, and Texas. Trump had tried to declare a national emergency earlier this year in order to divert Defense Department funds toward the border wall. The judge rejected that argument, noting that Congress has the power of the purse. Former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson told Congress that Jared Kushner bypassed the State Department to meet with foreign officials. Kushner privately talked with Saudi and Emirati leaders about secret plans to impose a blockade on Qatar, leaving Tillerson and then Defense Secretary Jim Mattis in the dark. American soccer star Megan Rapinoe said she would not visit the White House and that she stood by remarks criticized by Trump. She apologized only for using an obscenity to express reviews, saying, quote, my mom would be very upset about that. Rapinoe called for her team to join her boycott. Trump had previously criticized Rapino for not singing the national anthem, tweeting, Megan should never disrespect our country, the White House, or our flag, especially since so much has been done for her and the team. I am a big fan of the American team and women's soccer, but Megan should win first before she talks. Finish the job. We haven't yet invited Megan or the team, but I am now inviting the team, win or lose. Date 192, June 30th. 
Trump abruptly became the first sitting president to set foot in North Korea. Trump greeted Kim Jong-un and the DMZ following a hastily arranged meeting after the G20 summit. The two agreed to send their negotiators back to the table to seek a nuclear agreement. A federal judge ordered Customs and Border Patrol to let health experts into their detention facilities holding migrant children in order to assess if those facilities are safe and sanitary. The emergency order includes all CBP facilities in El Paso and Rio Grande. Lawyers for the ACLU also asked the judge to hold the Trump administration in contempt and order immediate improvements at those facilities. Iran has exceeded the maximum amount of low-enriched uranium allowed under the 2015 nuclear deal. Iran's stockpile of around 660 pounds of low-enriched uranium does not give the country enough material to produce a nuclear weapon. Trump had backed out of that painstakingly crafted Obama-era deal, calling it, quote, the worst deal ever. And Donald Trump Jr. shared and then deleted a tweet questioning if Democratic candidate Kamala Harris was black enough to discuss the black American experience. Trump Jr. shared a tweet that falsely claimed that Harris was not an American black because she comes from Jamaican slave owners. That is false. Julian Castro was among the Democratic candidates to defend Harris, calling Trump Jr. a coward. Date 193, July 1st. A new study showed Trump's rise in popularity during the 2016 campaign corresponded with social media activity by Russian trolls and bots of the Internet Research Agency that was run by the KGB. The study does not prove that Russian interference swung the election, but researchers at the University of Tennessee found that for every 25,000 retweets by accounts connected to the IRA, Trump's poll numbers jumped 1%. A ProPublica investigation revealed that some 9,500 current and former Border Patrol agents are part of a secret Facebook group that makes jokes about migrant deaths, discusses throwing burritos at Latino members of Congress, and posted illustrations that include Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez engaged in oral sex with a detained migrant. The group had existed since 2016 and is called, quote, I'm 1015, which is the Border Patrol code for aliens in custody. A Trump campaign consultant is anonymously running multiple fake Russian-style disinformation presidential campaign websites. Patrick Malden, who makes videos and other digital content for Trump's campaign, has set up a fake campaign website for, quote, Uncle Joe Biden, millionaire Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren for chief, and Kamala Harris for arresting the people. Malden calls the sites a political parody built and paid for, quote, by an American citizen for American citizens. The Biden site has drawn more traffic than Biden's real site, and has even begun selling t-shirts and monetizing. Pete Buttigieg showed surprising strength as a Democratic candidate collecting $24.8 million from donors in the most recent period. While that number pales next to the amount Trump has raised in the 24 hours alone after starting his re-election campaign, Buttigieg has now outraised every candidate save Biden, making him a major player in the Democratic race. Trump said military tanks would go on display in Washington as part of his plan to turn the 4th of July celebration into the nation's capital into a circus featuring him. Trump also ordered that the chiefs for the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines stand next to him. Trump claimed he was also showcasing brand new military equipment. In fact, the Sherman tank was retired after the Korean War. Day 194, July 2nd. The House filed a lawsuit to force the Treasury Department to turn over Trump's tax returns. The lawsuit moves the dispute into the federal courts after months of stonewalling by Trump and his associates, who have repeatedly dismissed the attempts to obtain Trump's financial records as illegitimate. Trump has attempted to argue that Congress's requests are only limited to what they define as legitimate legislative purposes. Two federal district court judges have already rejected that argument. A former attorney general claimed in a scathing expose in The Atlantic that Attorney General William Barr is using, quote, the office he holds to advance his extraordinary lifetime project of assigning unchecked power to the president. 
Donald Ayer says that Barr is intent on, quote, creating an all-powerful president and frustrating the founder's vision of a government of checks and balances. He also charges that Burr is using spurious investigations and misdirection to discredit Trump's critics. Trump's re-election campaign and the Republican National Committee said they had raised $105 million in the second quarter of this year, dwarfing what President Obama raised in the equivalent period during his re-election campaign. When Kenya attempted to halt the building of the first coal-fired power plant in their nation, an ambassador named by Trump protested. Kyle McCarter, who previously served as a Republican state senator in Illinois, claimed that coal is environmentally sound, the plant would boost the country's economy, and a critical analysis of the plant from a clean energy think tank was the work of, quote, highly paid protesters. Claiming that coal is the cleanest, least costly option, Carter put unusual pressure on Kenyan to open the plant. Government watchdogs warned in May that conditions in an El Paso, Texas border station were so bad that border stations were arming themselves against possible riots. That counters an assertion by a top Trump administration official that reports of poor conditions for migrants were unsubstantiated. Inspectors noted during a May 7th tour of a border station that only four showers were available for 756 immigrants. More than half of them were being held outside, and immigrants inside were being kept themselves maxed out at more than five times their capacity. Trump said he might intercede to clean up homelessness in San Francisco and Los Angeles, claiming that world leaders can't be looking at that and adding the homeless there make office workers unhappy. Apparently believing this homeless crisis began two years ago, Trump said, quote, you can't have what's happening where police officers are getting sick just by walking the beat. I mean, they're actually getting very sick where people are getting sick, where the people living there are living in hell, too. Perhaps they like living that way, but they cannot do that. We cannot ruin our cities. You have people that work in these cities. They work in office buildings, and to get into the building, you have to walk through a scene that nobody would have believed possible three years ago. Trump has actually proposed eliminating the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness twice. Trump also claimed in the same statement that, quote, Facebook was against me. They were all against me. Twitter was against me. It was unclear what he was referring to. D-195, July 3rd. Overcrowded and squalid conditions were revealed to be vastly more widespread at migrant centers along the border than initially revealed. Part of Homeland Security's own independent watchdog describes standing room-only cells, children without showers, hot meals, and detainees clamoring desperately for release. The release of the report gave way to Democrats have consistently detailed inhumane conditions at the border despite Trump's denials and have been threatened on social media in response. In addition, the news that Border Patrol agents had run a secret Facebook group containing thousands of racist and offensive posts, including ones that attacked Democratic lawmakers, was condemned by the head of the agency. Kevin K. McAllenian, the acting secretary of the DHS, said an immediate investigation was forthcoming into, quote, disturbing and inexcusable social media activity that allegedly includes active Border Patrol personnel. Meanwhile, Trump threatened to increase ICE raids after the 4th of July, saying, quote, they're going to be gone, they're going to go back to their countries, they go back home. Trump then praised Mexico for taking steps to curb the flow of migrants, claiming it was because of the tariffs that they're doing it, but the point is, they're doing a great job. Also, the Department of Homeland Security sent out fine notices for nearly $500,000 to some immigrants who were in the United States illegally for, quote, failing to depart the USA as previously agreed. ICE claims the Immigration and Nationality Act grants the agency the right to impose civil fines on aliens. Immigration lawyers said they've never heard of it used this way. Trump dropped his quest to put a question about citizenship on the 2020 census. The Supreme Court had ruled that Trump's rationale was dishonest. Outside groups said the question was intended solely to suppress Democratic-leaning voters. A federal court also called Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross dishonest in his attempts. Just 42% of Americans say they are extremely proud to be an American. That's an all-time low. 51% of Americans say they have no confidence in how Trump has handled the economy. These are the Trump Diaries.
Chuck Mertz spoke with LGBTQ activist Andy Thayer about the gay rights movement 50 years on from the Stonewall Uprising. Thayer discussed the disappointments of neoliberalism, why gay rights activists need to continue to be revolutionaries, and what the movement needs to relearn. This Is Hell airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. You call Stonewall a rebellion. You don't call it the, what it says in, for instance, uh, at Wikipedia, they call it the Stonewall Riot, and they say, or rebellion. Uh, in Detroit, the what was known as the Detroit Riots, people now refer to as the Detroit Uprising, which is a far more accurate word of what happened in Detroit in 1968. Why do you use the word rebellion over riot? And if we do call it the Stonewall Riots, how does that change what that means from being a rebellion? Well, the term riot, uh, I think, most importantly, uh, besides having pejorative uh, context, um, more importantly, it, it, it indicates a ephemeral phenomenon. We had the Compton Cafeteria riots in San Francisco that didn't lead to uh, much change in terms of political organizing after those 1966 riots of LGBTs. We had other riots, at least two others by my count, between that riot and Stonewall. Uh, and the difference with Stonewall was the political organizing that happened afterwards. And that's what people really need to fixate on. This whole notion that we have to be worried about who threw the first brick at the police officer and so forth really misses the point. It's the political organizing, the grassroots political organizing is what we really need in this country. Uh, and, and so that's, that's, I think, what we should be honoring with Stonewall is the fact that people came out of the closet and they openly organized for their rights. Well, why did that organization happen after Stonewall? Why didn't that happen after the Compton Cafeteria situation? Thank you for the, the, the great lead in there, Chuck. I'll pay you later. Uh, maybe pay down that that student debt a little bit. I'm reading the cue cards you're holding. I really appreciate it. <laughs> no, seriously. Um, a lot of the people that were involved in the Stonewall movement had not, you know, this was not their first taste of activism. They'd been active in, in other spheres, particularly the anti-war movement. And there were things that were going on in the country that that really drove people in the direction of, of saying both parties are bankrupt. We need to make the change ourselves. If we don't do it, no one else will. And one of the big things was the April 4th, 1968 assassination of Martin Luther King. Um, uh, black people with good reason said, look, this man gave American capitalism every opportunity to deal with its racism, and yet they killed him. Uh, then for the white left, so-called, um, the 1968 uh, August uh, Democratic National Convention here in the city of Chicago really was a wake-up call. Um, many people like with the Bernie campaign, thought that they might be able to capture the Democratic Party and use it as a vehicle for progressive change. And they supported uh, the the Jack Kennedy, um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting his first name wrong here, the, the, the Kennedy campaign. Robert Kennedy. Robert, thank you. I get them all mixed up all the time. <laughs> Robert Kennedy, as well as the Gene McCarthy campaigns, and both those gentlemen won something like three-quarters of primary votes. 
Uh, and yet, when it came to the uh, August 68 convention here in Chicago, Richard J. Daley uh, pushed through a pro-war candidate who had not won a single uh, uh, primary. And this was a total slap in the face of anti-war activists who thought they could use the Democratic Party as a vehicle to end the Vietnam War. Uh, worse than that, of course, was the police bludgeoning people uh, by the many hundreds, at least, in the streets of the city of Chicago, effectively erasing the First Amendment right to organize. Uh, and... Those two incidents really taught people that both parties were bankrupt, and people were not going to sign up with Richard Milhouse Nixon, uh, Tricky Dick as he was known at the time. Uh, and so people uh, decided that if they were going to have change, they had to make the change themselves. It was that self-emancipation that was at the heart of the Stonewall movement afterwards. That people need to make the change themselves, which makes it such a, a dramatic contrast to politics as we see it today, where we're told that we need to elect one of these democratic hoo-hahs in order to make the change for us. Uh, the Stonewall movement, the Black Power movement, the Women's Liberation movement, uh, the environmental movement, all these movements saw that the change was going to come from regular people such as themselves. They were not going to elect people to free them. Um, now, obviously, there were still some people in those movements who pursued the electoral uh, angle. But for the most part, the movements had an ethos of we've got to make the change ourselves, whether through the Black Panther Party survival programs um, you had also uh, the labor movement. It's important to note, many people don't know this, that uh, one of the biggest labor upsurges was in the early 1970s, a whole series of wildcat strikes that shook some very um, sclerotic uh, union bureaucracies to their knees in the mine workers, in the auto industry, and, and elsewhere. Uh, as uh, people went on these wildcat strikes, and it led to 1973 being one of the high points in the U.S. history in terms of working class share of uh, the income earned. Uh, and of course, it's been all downhill since then. Members of the Lunar Ticks turned in a John Daly session this week in Studio A. Engineered by Ari Shellist, this is. 10,000 pounds of talking. Hey, everybody out there in Radioland. Hi, hi. I'm uh, Ryan, and we got Foz over here. We're from hi, hi. the band Lunar Ticks. We're going to play some music really quick.
kids are convulsing, they're losing their pulses. Catatonic aftershock, do not know. They are unsure which way leads them home. Blood vessels escape on flatlining waves. Electronic heart rate, please don't resuscitate. Anemic drain pipe washes rain right through your veins. And I let you down. And I let you down. And I let you down. Who would have thought that I'm 23? Drown 10,000 pounds of talking, and I'll make it up somehow. And I and I'll drown 10,000 pounds of talking, and I'll make it up right now. My mind is distorted, my voice it just feeds back. Cuffinous noises, it's causing a racket. Teenage angst can hardly wait. Um, I suppose the um, the other really interesting sure. aspect of iGrocer um, is that it has a number of um, snacks, uh, foodstuffs, 
um, just uh, general, uh, you know, things in the store. Yes, there are things in the store that um, you cannot find elsewhere. Yes, that is, there, yeah, there were some really, there were some really unique products. There were some there really were some... unique uh, things there. Yeah, there were um, frozen toilet paper. Frozen toilet paper. Two percent produce. <laughs> Um, jumbo almonds jumbo almonds diet window cleaner uh b- battery variety pack uh just one battery of a number yeah. of sorts in a in a brown paper bag reverse re- reversible deli meats reversible deli meats i would love um i wish this that was the one instance where i wish there was a physical person sure. there a physical deliman yeah. to to explain to me how that worked because the, it yeah. was ham on one side and turkey <laughs> on the other it's really amazing one that i thought was was very interesting i don't know how these things were generated I, the, my my idea the I, the idea that i have about these things is that they're like it's looking for popular items, popular like flavors and popular items and they're sort of just mixing these popular elements together to create both savings and also new products, new things to sell. So that was very interesting that I found that that Tide that Tide Pod flavored toothpaste. Well, clearly it has its uh, what um, clearly the intelligence behind iGrocer Osco has its um, algorithms firmly sure. on the 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 heartbeat of popular. Um, culture. culture, and I, I, I would, I would actually believe that because the, um, I, I did notice quite a bit of, uh, of Fortnite branded, um, stuff. Um, yeah, it's strange that they seem to own every, every part. It, it is a monopoly. They own every aspect of the, you know, farm to table. It seems the Fortnite, the Fortnite branded chicken nuggets were a little <laughs> the um, battle bus to table. <laughs> Anyway, you did you did um, pick up I some did. some stuff from so, yeah. um, iGrocer. I have uh, this so, bag. Yeah, so what are so you? I what haven't you looked have? at this bag yet. I've looked at the other bags, but like I seem to not even have a memory of the things that I bought. You, so you left be you left with like several dozen bags. Sure, um, <laughs> which is I, I how I carried it all in that small basket is even a mystery to me. It's the mystery of the of the you know the AI, the AI grocer. So I have this bag. Okay, looks like I have. So this seems to be this seems to be some more bathroom products. Yeah. But I, I have a dig, distinct smell of salsa. Mm-hmm. I think so. As what I have here, it seems to be salsa flavored gauze. Are we cool yet? 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 The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt. Additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. (laughs) 